0: Today we're in Humboldt County in Eureka. Hi everybody, it's Farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. And you know what worms can do for your garden? They can do amazing things. I'm here with a a worm raiser, garden columnist, and all-around good gardener, Amy Stewart. And she has just come out with an excellent book about worms.
1: It's The Earth Moved on the Remarkable Achievements of Earthworms.
0: And it isn't just a how-to book of how to have worms in your garden and how to raise them and and harvest what they make. But it's also an interesting sort of history of worms and how they got here and the good guys and maybe even the bad guys of worms. And why don't we get that out of the way first? You have actually done some research and found that in some areas of the country, worms can be a pest.
1: Yeah, that's true. Uh, Minnesota is a really good example of that. Um, what I found, I traveled to Minnesota and talked with some forest ecologists there who have noticed that non-native worms like night crawlers and red wigglers um, come into the forest and chew up the duff layer, you know, that kind of spongy layer um, where seeds germinate and where plants really start to grow right on the surface. And they just consume that entire duff layer. They can eat the leaf fall of a forest um, every year. And it changes the composition of the forest floor and changes what plants can grow there.
0: I would think the understory would be the first thing to go.
1: Exactly. Understory plants and baby seedlings. And even even here in Humboldt County, you know, we're standing right here in my backyard, which was probably a redwood forest at one time, right? Native earthworms, native Californian worms probably aren't to be found in this backyard, but I do dig up lots of European worms.
0: Where are native earthworms found in California? Everywhere or in just specific spots these days?
1: Well, they're only going to be found in areas that have been left completely undisturbed. So um, parks and and any place where we've built neighborhoods, you're probably not going to find native earthworms. The other thing is we don't really know a lot about native earthworms in California because, believe it or not, there's not a lot of people out there digging them up and studying earthworms. But um, definitely probably not in your own backyard. The worms in your backyard are probably European worms.
0: And they got here, I would imagine, uh, via the settlers who came in.
1: That's right. In the roots of potted plants, um, even horses hooves, you know, uh, ships ballast. So they have all kinds of ways of getting around with
0: us. There has been a lot of talk, and we've talked about it on the show, about the benefit of worm castings. And for those who may have missed uh, those times we've talked about it, uh, tell people about worm castings and the benefit they are to a garden.
1: Well, I really encourage people to think about uh, worm castings as a soil inoculant because they're so full of beneficial bacteria, protozoa, nematodes, fungi. I mean, there can be a billion living creatures in a handful of worm castings. So a a little bit goes a long way. It's a very powerful soil amendment. And I really recommend just adding a little bit right at the roots of potted plants as you're, you know, planting your fall garden, for instance.
0: I'm kind of anal. When you say a little bit, are you talking about a teaspoon, a tablespoon, or what?
1: I'm talking about maybe a handful.
0: Okay, so a handful, that's exact. <laughs> <laughs> so a handful of of the worm castings in a hole when you plant. In fact, uh, you urge people in your book to maybe get away from rototilling their garden every spring because it disturbs uh, the earthworms to a great deal. And uh, you have another method for planting, the, the no-till method, and using some interesting coverings. Why don't you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, I use um, cover crops in my garden a lot. And um, this is especially something that you can do if you don't get a real hard freeze in the winter. But um, even then, if you plant early enough, you can do this where you plant uh, maybe fava beans, uh, vetch, uh, rye grass uh, in any empty spot in your garden where you're not going to be planting, where you're going to let it have a little rest. So the roots go down very deep, help break up clay soil. Um, a lot of those, uh, you know, something like veg will really help to fix nitrogen in the soil and prevent soil erosion. And then just chop that down in the spring and let it decompose. Let the roots decompose underground, and you're ready to plant.
0: In some books or literature, you may see about cover cropping in the spring to cut it down and then till it in. But uh, that's not necessarily such a great idea, is it?
1: No, a lot of people now are just saying there's no need to till it in. Just uh, just leave it there on the surface and the roots will gradually decompose underground and help keep that fragile community of microorganisms intact underground.
0: You talk about in your book when you're doing that in the fall after you've uh, torn out your summer garden is to put in a layer of newspaper as well. Uh, how much newspaper would you put in and then put, well, I guess, compost on top and then the cover crop? Uh, exactly how would you go it? About that
1: um, I use 10 to 20 sheets of newspaper or um, or cardboard you know when, when I moved into this house we had a lot of cardboard boxes so this is a great way to start a start a new garden for the first time lay down many overlapping layers of cardboard and then start piling compost and manure on top of that you could even plant a cover crop on top of that and gradually the worms will come up and eat the cardboard and the whole thing will sort of come together and create this light fluffy layer that you can plant right into in the spring
0: so it only takes a couple of seasons that if you did that in the fall, that ground would be ready to uh, plant in the spring.
1: Sure, yeah. A lot of the garden we're standing in, I did a lot of this garden that way.
0: Are there any restrictions as far as what sort of newspaper to use in, in such a process?
1: You know, most newspapers are using soy-based inks right now, so the inks are a lot safer. Of course, I don't use any glossy paper, but um, I don't think there's a problem with uh, small colored photographs, for instance, on newspaper.
0: You know what's great about uh, raising worms to get the worm castings is you don't need a lot of space. Uh Tell us about your little setup on your back porch.
1: Well, I've got a worm bin called a can of worms. And this is a bin that you can buy commercially. And uh, it's quite small. I mean, wouldn't you say it's about the size of an ordinary garbage can? Maybe not even that large.
0: It's smaller than that.
1: Yeah. Um, And it has three stacking trays so the worms can move up. It's sort of like a worm condo. You know, they can move up and down through these three layers. And uh, it's the easiest thing in the world to walk out the kitchen door, dump uh, food scraps in there, and then pull out castings whenever I need them for the garden.
0: And again, you would just use those castings uh, in a planting hole. You wouldn't have to buy yards and yards of worm castings to uh, spread uh, throughout a garden area.
1: That's right, and in fact, you know, it really isn't going to do your garden a lot of good to spread worm castings on the surface. Um, They do have a tendency to sort of dry out and oxidize. They're really best for being underground, so this is great when you're planting new plants or if you want to sort of work some in around existing plants, really really be sure and get it underground and maybe cover it with a
0: layer of mulch. What about the um, liquid products that people are now uh, manufacturing using worm castings, Uh, worm tea, I guess? Is that useful? Is that worth the effort?
1: It is useful. I have a a compost tea brewer here that has a little um, bubbler, like an aquarium bubbler. Mm -hmm. So you can mix in worm castings with water and let it kind of brew for 24 hours. And what will happen is all those beneficial microbes, their population will really explode in this damp, aerobic environment. And then you can use it as a foliar feeding, you know, spray it right on the leaves of plants. And uh, it's really supposed to help, uh, you know, plants um, grow faster, resist diseases, be better able to fight off pest infestation so yeah it's a great thing to do for your garden
0: In your book, you talk about uh, doing some research as far as uh, the benefits of worm castings, that uh, there is some thought that maybe uh, worm castings can ward off plant disease and pests. Uh, What have you found out in that regard?
1: Yeah, I talked to a researcher at Ohio State University. This is one of those rumors. Believe it or not, there are like worm chat rooms out there on the (laughs) Internet. (laughs) So this is like one of those crazy urban legends about worm castings is that they will help um, get rid of aphids and whitefly, which, you know, we're all looking for. Yeah. Um, and so I asked Dr. Edwards at the at Ohio State University about that because he does a lot of research on earthworms and agriculture. And he said, you know, there really may be something to that. They have done some greenhouse experiments where they have seen that plants grown in soil that's rich in worm castings really do seem to be left alone by those sucking insects like uh, aphids or like whitefly. I use them on my roses. I haven't had a big problem with aphids since I started doing it. It's one of those things that it can't hurt to try, Mm -hmm. but uh, the the research isn't quite there yet.
0: You also talk about in your book that there are some plants that worms will shy away from, maybe even run away from if they could possibly run. And uh, one of those is uh, wasabi?
1: Oh, that's right. They hate wasabi and they hate mustard. Um, Earthworm scientists know all these tricky ways to get worms out of the soil if they want to do an earthworm census. And one of the ways to do that is to sort of impregnate the soil with uh, mustard or wasabi. But, you know, that'll bring a lot of stuff up to the surface. I don't think anybody wants to live in that environment.
0: There are a lot of farmers and backyard gardeners who will use mustard as a cover crop, especially for its beautiful show of flowers in late winter and early spring in the Sacramento area, but uh, that won't be doing the earthworm population much good, will it?
1: Well, I don't. I doubt that the roots of a mustard plant are really as concentrated as a mustard product made from the seeds, so I, I don't think it discourages worms too much to use
0: mustard as a cover crop. What do you feed the worms, by the way? Oh, good question.
1: Um, they're not very picky eaters. Uh, I'll tell you what they don't like. Um... Um, They don't like anything too spicy, so I don't give them onions, garlic, uh, chili peppers. Um, They don't like meat. Uh, dairy, any kind of fat will get very rancid in the bin, so you want to leave that out. So lots of vegetables. Um, All your vegetable trimmings, they love fruit, and I think probably the reason for that is there's a lot of sugars in fruit, which attracts a lot of bacteria, and that's actually what the earthworms are eating. They're not really eating the banana or the mango that you drop in the bin. They're eating all the little microscopic creatures that are eating the mango or the banana. Um, They'll eat paper, so I always put lots of shredded newspaper or shredded computer paper coffee grounds, tea bags, um, plain pasta or rice. So there's plenty that you can feed them.
0: And how important is the moisture level in a worm composting bin?
1: It's very important because that's how earthworms breathe. They need uh, Their skin needs to be damp in order for them to breathe. They don't have lungs. They breathe through special cells in their skin. So it needs to be about as damp as a wrung out sponge. If it's too wet, they'll come to the surface the way you see worms mass on the sidewalk after a rainstorm because they're in search of air um, and if it's too dry they just can't survive so it is important to really watch dampness and of course that's really affected by heat as well
0: speaking of heat it does get warm in Sacramento here in Humboldt County uh, you're lucky to get over 75 so you can probably raise just about any worm you want but in the Central Valley and in areas where it does get quite warm warm is there a worm that can tolerate the heat better than others
1: well actually the worm that's most popular for composting the red Wiggler which which is Latin name, Mycenia fatida is pretty tolerant of a lot of different conditions. It's a very forgiving worm, which I think is one of the reasons it's become so popular for home worm composting. And um, just make sure that your bin is completely in the shade, that it gets no sun at all. And if you want to bring it into a uh, basement or a garage, keep a thermometer there and really keep an eye on it because some people's garages get a lot hotter during the day than they might realize.
0: All right, some good tips on worm composting from Amy Stewart. While we're here in your yard... I want to talk about some of the plants you have here because it's always a pleasure. It's the best part of my job is to go around and look at people's yards uh, and just enjoy the plants that I don't know if we could grow in Sacramento or not. But golly, I sure would like to try. Like this salvia here with this deep maroon spike like flower. Which salvia is this?
1: This is salvia contiflera. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and yeah, it has these tall velvety spikes. So if you like Mexican sage, the salvia lucantha that has the blue velvety spikes, you can imagine how great it would look with this red companion next to it for contrast.
0: And it's blooming now in uh, we're doing this in early fall. So I imagine it's been blooming since uh, what, August or so?
1: Oh, yeah. And uh, actually, I think this one started earlier, but it does and it goes right through winter. I leave these stalks on all winter long and they just look terrific.
0: I bet it's a good cut flower, too. It's
1: gorgeous. Yeah.
0: Now you have another salvia not too far from it that starts off with kind of a, a yellow flower bud that opens up to a blue flower that looks sort of like the uh, a typical blue salvia, but the, the yellow bud is gorgeous by itself.
1: Yeah, this is salvia mexicana limelight. Now there's two salvia mexicanas. There's the one that has the purple calyx and then the purple flowers, but this is almost chartreuse with these little purple flowers coming out of it. So even when the flowers themselves drop off, just the remaining, you know, the remaining flower stalk is gorgeous because it's that brilliant chartreuse color. It
0: is. Well, Amy Stewart, thanks for spending some time with us. Thanks for the tour of your garden. And again, the name of your book is?
1: The Earth Moved on the Remarkable Achievements of Earthworms.
0: Published by?
1: Algonquin Books.
0: And available at a bookstore or, or online near you. Thank you, Amy.
1: Thank you.